We are in 2 Samuel 13, 2 Samuel 13 and 14. This evening, as we are in the saga of Absalom, we we finally got there, guys. Uh, The saga of Absalom, which I've I've sort of been alluding to throughout the entire study of of the life of David. And and as we, we embark upon this, I believe we will spend three weeks. Well, let's think about this. This week, next week I won't be, next week after that I won't be. Uh, and then, when are the youth, when are, when are you guys doing the service? December 4th. Oh, so I won't have that either. Man. Maybe I'll, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But it's going to be, it's going to be multi-week, this, this study of Absalom's saga in David's life. As we begin, I want to emphasize, as we have throughout the study, that humanity's struggles really never change. This is the same across eras, right? Now, I will say, as we think about the struggles of David versus our struggles, a couple of things stand out about David that are different than us. Uh, number one, he's king. Raise your hand if you're a king. Nobody's a king. You could, you could be a king, I guess, metaphorically, symbolically in your heart if you really want to feel like you're a king. But you don't have the ab- ability to order men into battle. You don't have the ability, as we looked at last week, to murder, uh, murder Uzzah in that way. Uh, Uriah, not Uzzah. I got those mixed up. Murder Uriah in that way. You don't have that ability. You don't have the ability to just buy anything you want at any moment. Now, some of us may, even if we're not a king, maybe you're that well off. But, you know, most people throughout history just didn't have that, right? They don't have the—David, whatever he wanted, he could just get. Whenever he wanted it, he could just do it. So we think about the, the struggles as we think across eras, across history. The things that people struggle with today are the same things as in the past, but as we think about how to apply circumstances in the Bible to our lives, we have to think about some of these differences. Of course, Ecclesiastes 1, 8 through 11, uh, similar, a familiar verse, I'm sure, to many of us. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So, you know, thinking about the arc of history here. One of those things is how those in power treat their children. And, you know, this is a tale as old as time, how the children of those who are in in immense positions of power and wealth and influence, a lot of times what happens with those children? They go off the deep end, don't they? For, for one reason or another, we could think about any, we could think about dozens and dozens of examples throughout history of people who grew up in these circumstances and the ways that that warped how they turned out. And we see that, surprise, again, nothing new under the sun. We see that in the life of David. This person, king of Israel, pinnacle of society of his time, wealthy, a great warrior, on and on and on. Great, all the awesome stuff. And yet his family was not immune to the same sort of power struggles and difficulties that people in power throughout history have always faced. Now, some context that we've read before, but we need to remind ourselves of as we get into the story. Deuteronomy 17, 17, which we've we've read a bunch of times because this is going to be one of the things that is the theme of David's life and also the life of Solomon. We're not going to go into Solomon's life after this, but, you know, eventually when we do— one of the themes, of course, of kings throughout the nation of Israel, he shall not acquire for himself many wives, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits 
on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of the, uh, in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. We see what? Don't have a lot of wives, don't get super wealthy. Why? What's, they, we know why, because what that is going to do to your family. It's the same story as any other time and place in history. Again, this is not, the problem is not any particular time and place. The problem is people and the ways that we are as people. David broke at least two of these rules. Now, I, I suspect he probably followed the third one. He maybe did make a copy of the book of the law for himself. He obviously talks a lot in the Psalms about loving the law of God and about having this dedication to the law of God. So maybe he did do that. And yet, as we will see in the story tonight, he does not act like he knows the law. The point was to make sure the king knew the law. He doesn't act like he knows it. David did not follow these commands as king, and it led to a bunch of problems. 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 11, which we read last week, the consequence for his sin with Bathsheba. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of your eye, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And we think, well, you know, you read through the story of 2 Samuel and you think, well, maybe, maybe he repented and he confessed and, you know, did all that stuff. And then God sort of backed off of the consequence and yet we will see God did not back off of this consequence. Evil is about to arrive again in David's life from within his own house. And so we come to 2 Samuel 13 through 19. One of the most brutal stretches of the Bible, both for its narrative and its detail, uh, as you think about what is taking place in this story, it is, it is horrible. It's, it's truly horrible. This is a truly horrible story. I feel like I should put a, uh, what do they call them now? Trigger warning, uh, a content advisory. That's what they used to be called, right? I feel like I should put a content advisory on this sermon. In fact, YouTube might demonetize, demonetize like we make any money on YouTube. Uh, YouTube might prevent us from advertising this because of the content of this story. Second Samuel 13, 1 and 2. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Now, of course, we need to remember, get the, get the context again. David has more than one wife. He, these are all half-siblings, right? You've got half-siblings going on here, which doesn't make it any better. But it, I guess, you know, just it's important to say the, the, we see the, the kind of the infighting of the family because they have different moms, basically. It's the, the, you know, I'm, I'm my full sister here, and you're my half-brother, and, you know, I love my sister more than I love you because you're only half my sibling, right? And, you know, this is how people are. This is, again, how people are, the, the infighting that comes from this. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, Amnon, David's son, loved her, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon that he should do anything to her. Yes, Amnon, don't do anything. It is impossible. Get over yourself. That's what I want to say. And, and, and really, that's what David should said, right? Now, we don't get any indication that David ever does that. And we don't even really know if David is aware of the situation. We don't get any indication in the text one way or the other. So we have to sort of infer here. For one thing, we do know that David was not proactive as a parent. Even if he did, no, maybe he didn't know, which is its own problem, right? If David doesn't know of this situation, that's its own kind of problem. David should know what's going on in his house. And if he did know, there's no indication in the text that he took any proactive steps to make sure that Amnon 
didn't do anything inappropriate. And so we see as we go on, 2 Samuel 13 through 10, or 3 through 10, we're not going to read it. Amnon's friend devises a scheme. Amnon's going to pretend to be sick, and he's going to request that Tamar come in and, and help him with his sickness. And, and, you know, Amnon's hoping one thing's going to lead to another, and, you know, we'll get things going here. Verse 11 when she brought them near him, when she brought the food near him to eat, he took hold of her. So he's, they're all alone right here because he's sick and nobody's around. And he's, again, Tamar's sort of helping him out. He took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her and being strong than her he violated her and lay with her uh, you know the language is is sort of sanitized for modern context he raped her that's what he did right he raped her that's what's going on here now we get back to the part what was the thing that David was supposed to do write for himself a copy of the law what did the law have to say about this situation Leviticus 20 verse 17, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, notice that there had to be a distinction made there. Not a great situation that you have to make that distinction, but it is very specific in the text. Even a half-sibling. And sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness. It is a disgrace. That's what she was saying, right? It is, it is, such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this. They shall be cut off in the sight of the children of his, their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. The consequence was clear, and David should have known it. That was the whole point of making David write the law, right? That he would know the law. The king needs to know the law. So either one of two possibilities. Either David knew this, which makes what is about to follow worse, or he didn't know it, which is bad in its own right that he did not, as a king, know the law that he should. I suspect, however, based on his, all of his psalms about the law, that David did know the law. He did know what was right, which, of course, makes what follows worse. 2 Samuel 13, verse 15, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. Amnon, you know, he does this thing, he rapes her, and he feels... He, he redirects all of his, his bitterness toward her. Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said, no, my brother, this is wrong. And sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. And Tamar does not, not go quietly. She, she rips her clothes and sackcloth and ashes. You know, she goes in the streets wailing and crying. She does not let this go. She just doesn't just slink away. She makes it known to everybody, hey, Amnon did this horrible thing. You should do something about it. And that makes us so sad, what follows. This is a horrible story. Verse 20, her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Oh, don't worry about it. You got raped, but don't worry about it. That, that's horrible, a horrible thing. Of course, Absalom says this, but he's going to do something different. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Good for Absalom for at least hating his, you now he's, he's sort of is trying to, I think, uh, sort of make things, make Tamar feel better perhaps. But here's the worst part of the story. And, and I think this is the worst verse in the entire section, 13 through 19, these chapters. This is the worst words. 
2 Samuel 13, 23, after two full years. What does that mean? Two full years. That's the next verse after this. It means that David did nothing. Zip. He was angry. Great for you, David. You did not enact justice. You did not do what the law required. And forget the law for a minute. You did not do what would be good for the people involved, which is why it was the law, right? God doesn't just make up laws willy-nilly. He made the law because this is what was good for the people. And so even if David wasn't going to do it, you know, we have this attitude, you know, maybe the sort of the letter of the law. I'm going to find some way to follow the letter of the law. I want to do what's right and this idea. David doesn't demonstrate any of that for two years. How does that make Tamar feel, do you think? How do you think that makes the rest of the women in David's house feel? That this happened, and David may be angry about it, but he just lets things go. How do you think it made Absalom feel for two years? Until Absalom's had enough. And we go back to that consequence, right? The consequence for the sin with Bathsheba. The sword will not depart from your house all your days. I will raise up from among your own house evil against you. God did it, but he did it because David was going to let it happen. Why did David not intervene? Why did he allow this to persist? Why did he not enforce consequence? Now, we can only infer. We can only speculate at this point. So I want, to, I want to frame this slide with a little bit of caution because we need to think about this in our own lives and we need to think about this in David's life. And we're having to make some inferences and some speculations about this. And here's why we're going to do this exercise. Because the reasons that David didn't enforce justice are the reasons we don't enforce justice. People do not change. People are the same. The reasons that we don't do the things that God wants are all the same reasons that David didn't do what God wanted. Now, maybe he was too busy running the kingdom, right? You get, you know, you get busy. He's in charge of everybody. He's got a bunch of stuff going on. He's fighting all sorts of wars, right? God said the sword would never depart. So maybe he's, he's off running the kingdom, doing all sorts of kingly things, and he doesn't have time to deal with the sin in his household. Understandable, but horrible, right? Is that an excuse? It's a reason. This, I, this always bothered me, the difference between reason and excuse. We use those the wrong ways. It might have been a reason that he was too busy running the kingdom, but it does not excuse him from this problem. Same with us, right? We get busy. Now, we don't even have a kingdom to run, but we get busy. Stuff happens, and we don't deal with the things that are going on in our lives. I understand. But just because it's understandable doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it okay. Maybe he was too busy not running the kingdom, but surprise, surprise, his numerous other wives and children. What did we say? Like 20 kids with like eight women, I think is what we said earlier. So how, how much is that going to, you think about, okay, guys, you have your household. I don't know any of us probably don't have 20 kids. They did more commonly probably back in, in other times. I think about if I had seven other wives and 18 other children, some stuff would fall through the cracks. 
don't you think? Tracy's nodding like, yeah, of course it would, Chris. You can't even handle what we got. But wasn't that the point of the command? Wasn't that the point of the command? He shall not accumulate for himself many wives. It's almost like God knew. Hey, kings, don't do this, because what happens if you do this? You're not going to be able to do what you're supposed to do as king. Maybe he was, didn't want to deal with it because of how it would look. Well, maybe. Again, we're, we're speculating. We don't know this to be the case, but this is definitely the case for some of us, isn't it? A difficult situation. Oh, man, you think about the struggles. Too, 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 too mild of a word. You think about the horrific situation going on that has been going on in a variety of churches, the Catholic Church most prominently, but they're not, they're not the only ones, let's be clear about this, that was covered up. Why? Because of how it would look. The reputation, right? We do this. We do this. You do this in your life, maybe. Hopefully not, but maybe you do. There's something going on in your family, and you don't deal with it because it would look bad. And at that point, what are you doing? You're putting your reputation ahead of what is righteous. Now, maybe David didn't do that, but it is a possibility. Maybe he loved Amnon too much. Some favoritism going on. Who else had this problem in the Bible? Even in the Old Testament. Think about problems that arise from favoritism among families. Isn't that what happened with Joseph? He was sold into slavery? Because why? Well, because in part because his father played favorites, made his brothers jealous. Maybe that's what's going on here. Again, maybe that's not what's happening, but we need to think about it for our situations, why we don't enforce the things that we're supposed to enforce, why we don't deal with sinful situations, is sometimes we don't deal with it because we like the person who sinned more than the person who was wronged. What does James say about that, though, when we do that? Have you not then become judges with evil thoughts? Show no partiality as you carry out God's will. Paraphrasing in James, of course. The worst possibility of all, which again is not necessarily borne out in the text, but we need to think about it for ourselves. Why we don't deal with sin. The worst possibility is he just didn't care. Now, I don't think that's the case in David's situation, because it does say, right, he, David, when David heard all of this, he was very angry. So he did care in some sense, but whatever level of care he had did not lead him into doing the right thing. Hopefully we care about what's righteous, and hopefully we care enough about what's righteous to let our, our, our investment in righteousness supersede all the other things that get in the way. Now, we continue then. Saul Absalom's vengeance, because we have a little bit extra time tonight. 2 Samuel 13, 23 through 39. We're not going to read this. The upshot of it, the scheme, Absalom murders Amnon. Took two years for him to get up, maybe get up the gumption, or maybe he waited two years to see if David would do anything about it. Maybe he waited two years because he needed to wait for the right moment. Whatever it is, Absalom, he tells Tamar, hey, Tamar, don't worry about it. It's just your brother. Don't take it to heart. Absalom took it to heart. 
so much so that he murders Amnon. Now, there's a little bit of confusion after this, uh, after this, but, you know, Amnon flees, not Amnon, Absalom flees. They're both A names. It's hard to keep straight. Absalom flees, and there's a little bit of confusion. Did Absalom murder all of the rest of David's kids, or did he just murder Amnon? And there's a little bit of confusion going on in the story. But again, the question is, why did Absalom have to be the one to deal with this? David should have done it already. Verse 37, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Gesher, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Gesher and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is a little bit of a difficult Hebrew construction. Some of the translations are going to be, have a variety of different things at the end of these verses here. Either way, here's what we see. David just like with Amnon, doesn't do anything about it. Why doesn't David do something, anything, anything at all in this story? Up until this point, David is an entirely passive player. Even though David is what? He's the king. If anyone has the ability to enact anything that he wants, any sort of outcome that he desires, he has some ability to influence. And yet up to this point in the story, David is entirely passive. Do something. In our lives, if we allow sin to persist, we do not deal with it, someone else will eventually do something about it. And if we don't deal with it in the way that we know is righteous, they're going to deal with it however they think it needs to be dealt with. Do not be passive in your life. Do not allow other people to dictate what goes on in your life. Do something. Hopefully what you do will be in accordance with God's will. Now we come to part three then, Joab's reconciliation. One of the things that is true as we go through the life of David, Joab is really one of the heroes. Uh, he's one of the, the, you know, he's sort of a side character in air quotes there. He's one of the guys that pops up over and over again in these stories as continually having pretty good ideas continually having some wisdom, continually doing some good stuff. 2 Samuel 14, 1 through 3, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, I don't know if that's right, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, and Joab sent Tekoa and brought, him, uh, brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner, put on mourning garments, go and do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And then in the same way that Nathan confronted David, I, we don't have time, I'd really encourage you to read 2 Samuel 14. Uh, this woman goes to David with a story, a story about, just like Nathan, who confronted about Bathsheba, right, the man with the sheep, and the guy who stole it, and David got all angry because he understood the truth of the story. This woman goes to David with the words that Joab tells her and, and tells David this story about this guy who is dead and his brother and the fleeing and, you know, goes into the cities of refuge. And there's a lot of things that are going on in the story. But the point is this. She tells him the story and David realizes, yeah, I should do something about this situation, whatever it is that I need to do. Verse 13, the woman said, Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the decision not to do anything about Amnon, the decision not to do anything about Absalom, in this decision, the king convicts himself, and as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. 
We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Again, that's the cities of refuge and, and all the different things that go along with that. We're not going to go deep into the context here. But the woman's story galvanizes David into realizing, yeah, I should do something. I should be active in some way. And he only does it because Joab hires a woman to go trick him. Joab really is the hero of the story. The king said, ultimately, after a lot of back and forth, let then Absalom dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, lives apart in his own house, and did not come into the king's presence. So even though he let Absalom come back, his heart, what did it say? It said several times. Uh, we'll go back to it. The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. And then it says here, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And then at the end of the day, when he lets Absalom come back, what? Don't be in my presence. Go live in your own house. Don't come before me. What is happening with David? David's going back and forth and back and forth. What is going on here? That David brings Absalom back, but then doesn't do anything with him. For again, we have the same phrase, Two full years that David does not do anything. He just lets Absalom live by himself and has no interaction with his son. And this comes back to again. There's a lot of good qualities to David. A lot of good things about David. There's a reason that Jesus is the son of David. David is not Jesus. David is just a dude. And a dude who has a lot of power and a lot of responsibility who ultimately fails his children. Out of all the people in history, the man after God's own heart, terrible parent. Truly terrible parent. Which says what? Don't hold anybody up to the standard of Jesus. There's only one Jesus. There's only one perfect guy. There's only one person that can be on that pedestal. There's a lot of heroes in the Bible. Moses, Elijah, David. You think about the prophets. A lot of good guys. A lot of good people. They all are nothing compared to Jesus. Only Jesus can be on that pedestal. So what happens? Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab and sent him to the king, but Joab would not come. He sent the second time and Joab would not come. Joab, he's got his own problems here, right? Then he said to the servants, go see Joab's fields is next to mine. He has barley there. Go set it on fire. <laughs> I just love this. He's trying to get to talk to somebody. Nobody's listening to him. Go set their field on fire. Maybe then they'll come talk to me, which it works. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire, and Joab arose and went to Absalom in his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come, that I may send you to the king and ask, Why have I come here to get from Geshur? It were better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. If, if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Let's resolve this, Joab. Let's be done with it. One way or the other. You've brought me here. You've just had me in, in my own house for two years. I can't go into the presence of the king. I can't talk to my dad. Let's be done with this in some way. 
Then Joab sent to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom, and he came before the king and bowed on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. It's interesting how the narrative depersonalizes David in this instance. Makes David impersonal, right? Not his father, not even by name, the king. Because I think what is clear as we've gone through the narrative, the relationship between David and Absalom is not really that of father and son. It hasn't been up until this point. And it's going to be so ironic, not ironic, it's going to be so tragic. Tragic is the right word. It's going to be so tragic as we continue through the saga of Absalom when David eventually realizes the full depth of what he's lost. Because he would not take action when the need arose. Because he was too passive. Which again, so ironic in the life of David. Beginning of the story of David and Goliath, right? What does he do? He goes to the camp. He's like, what, what are y'all doing? You're just waiting around here? Well, why is nobody taking out this stupid giant? And he just does it. Why couldn't he be that way here? As we conclude the part one of this saga. Some of David's more prominent flaws. Unwillingness to take responsibility, to enact justice, again, for whatever reason. There is an element of favoritism among his children. I think that's absolutely on display here. Refusal to make things right, one way or the other. And again, I don't know if it's, you know, we, could, we have to speculate as to motivation. Pettiness, unwillingness to deal, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. And here's my point about that. His reasons ultimately don't matter. Your reasons, my reasons, for being unrighteous ultimately do not matter. We're not given reasons for David in the text. We don't need them because it's irrelevant. He didn't do what was right, and he's going to pay the consequence. Not yet, but he will. Just like in our lives, it doesn't really matter what your motivations are. If you refuse to do what is righteous, to do what you know to be right, to take responsibility, it doesn't really matter why you're going to bear the consequence of it. Either in this life, broken relationships, strife, discord, financial ruin, health situations, all very plausible responses to sin or results of sin. But if not in this life, you'll definitely bear the consequence in judgment. And when you get to judgment, what is it going to be? You're going to stand up there and be like, oh, but God, I did it for X, Y, or Z. I did it for this reason. I did it because of X, Y. And what is God going to say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Reasons ultimately, if we are not willing to do what God wants, do not matter. Even righteous people can succumb to the same impulses, temptations, and struggles that have always plagued humanity. Even the man after God's own heart. And even we, though we are again not in the same positions of power as David, can exhibit the same struggles and flaws. The conclusion is simple. Are you, are we, willing to enact what God has commanded, regardless, I should say personal, regardless of personal cost or shame? We can hem and haw and give all sorts of reasons, but at the end of the day, it's very simple. Are you willing to do what God wants? The answer is yes or no, right? Motivation is secondary. As we conclude, 
offering the invitation. We're going to sing, there's a fountain free, tis for you and me. Why do we need the fountain? Because we're like David, aren't we? We're all like David. We all make mistakes. We're all imperfect. We all do the things that we shouldn't do, and we all fail to do the things we know to do, which is why James, he says that. It's so important, right? For him who knows the thing to do and fails to do it, what is that? For him it is sin. Oh man, I wish that verse wasn't in the Bible, guys. You did it this week. I did it this week. We need the fountain, the fountain of Christ's forgiveness, the fountain of God's love. If you need to make things right, come while we stand and sing.